Hello and welcome to Publish Me, a monthly podcast series from AS21 Publishing, looking at the publishing process of the fantasy novel, The Will of the Magi. I'm your host, Keith F. Shevlin, publisher and chief creative of AS21 Publishing, and joining me as always is... Hello everyone, this is Paul Russell, the author of the upcoming novel, The Will of the Magi. I hope everyone is doing well. (laughs) Thank you for joining me this month, Paul. This is the August 2015 edition of the Publish Me Podcast, officially Chapter 5? Yeah, Chapter 5, I believe. Chapter 5? Yep. Johnny 5? Johnny 5, excellent. Take 5? No, don't take 5. We've got to record this. (laughs) Yeah, it is Chapter 5. Which is the officially the seventh edition of the podcast, the seventh episode, but that's because you know, we're breaking apart. The names are based on the parts of the book, so the first official episode was title page, then forward, now the chapters. This is chapter five. Tonight we're going to be talking about perspective, narrative voice, you know, the writing perspective of the book. Now, first, to start out, just where are you right now, Paul, on the progress on The Will of the Magi? Well, right now I am at a rewriting point of certain sections of my novel. A week ago, as of this recording of this podcast, I was at the Confluence Convention in Pittsburgh. And oh, nice. That's my hometown. Yes. Yeah. It, is a, it was a wonderful town, little area, a wonderful convention. A little bit smaller than ones I'm used to, you know, Mysticon, Ravencon. Right. But I had a great deal of fun there. However... In one of the panels, we were, you know, the discussion was going on about magic systems in novels and how some magic systems worked really, really well and how some magic systems were really, really broken. And I came to the conclusion that the magic system I had envisioned was not the magic system I had written into my story. Um, I have a terrible issue in that I tend to create god characters when they're using magic. They tend to be able to do things that everyone else can't do at all. Okay. Um, so I have restructured my entire magic system in a way that actually helps balance out the story and make thing, makes things a lot easier, makes things a lot more understandable, and actually works with the various laws of physics... Oh, even, that, when you that's take helpful. In, even when you take into account magic being a part of the universe. Right. So, as a, what I'm going to explain now is how the magic system works a little bit briefly. Okay. Now, is this in contrast to what we discussed three months ago, setting the rules of the world? Or is it, I mean, is it changing from what we discussed then? Or is it pretty much a continuation? It's going to be a, it's a little bit of both, honestly. Because there were aspects that I really, really wanted to keep in the story, things I really, really liked. But it was more, the problems I had were more about how I wrote them and how they were coming across. In my system, there is magic available to anyone who can learn how to use it. The problem is, the the main source of magic is essentially in the earth itself, is how I'm going with it now. You know, if you believe in spirits, if you believe in the deities, you know, as I have developed them, there is a deity that everyone essentially deals with, but no one really embraces. I'm going to use as my word here. I know it's not the right word for what I want, but 
I have all my various pantheons, each of my races, each of my civilizations worship. But then you also have the Gaia, Mother Earth Spirit, and that's okay. the one that provides the magic. So all my races dip into that deity spirit and use that essence for magic. From there, my problem was that I, I had written too much confusion as to why certain things were happening. And in terms of what happens with my story, why my main character is as, as important as he is. And it's essentially the reason my main character is as important as he is is because of how he learns to use magic, which is very different. My main character being Aiden, of course, is Aiden how Aiden learns to use magic as opposed to everyone else in the society that he is born into. Here are some more spoilers for everyone to enjoy. When you tap into the magical essence that you are tapping into, you can shape it however you want. So if you wanted to use it to create fire, create earth, create water, whatever, heal someone, kill somebody, whatever you want to do with it, you can do that as long as you have essentially the will, hence the will of the Magi, to do so. Nice way to use the title. Good job. Yes. There we go. <laughs> That's why we have the title I have. Good. So a Magi's will helps them focus and shape and use their power. The problem is that well, there are several different problems along with this in terms of using power. The first one is that magic affects the user. If A lot of magic systems, if you look really closely at them, do not have adequate punishments or issues when it comes to using magic. You see some, you know, in some stories that people have read, like in Harry Potter, if you don't say it right, nothing happens. If it's a magic spell, you might, or if you are... Or you might say it wrong and you blow your feather up in your face. You know, book one, Sorcerer's Stone. If you are an Aragon fan, you have the magic system there where it can drain you a little bit or kill you. you know, start... it, it's kind of comparative to, you know, mispronouncing words in different languages. How right. I knew what you may, you may get a slight mispronunciation wrong and it just comes out as gibberish or a slight mispronunciation wrong and you just offended the host's mother. Right, Exactly. You know, you have those kind of problems in those universes. In mine, the magic punishment, there are several different punishments. The minor punishment is that, yes, it does drain your own physical stamina. So if you don't have a lot of stamina to begin with, you really can't do that much. Now, the additional problem with this is that most magi are lazy. So... They don't walk around much. They, they tend to get carried around. They ride a horse, whatever. They already magically have a lifestyle that doesn't give them a lot of stamina to begin with. Add to that, the additional issue that I am making my characters suffer from is that using specific forms of magic affects your emotional state. So if you use a lot of fire, you're going to become a very angry, irritable person. <laughs> if you use a lot of earth, You'll be stubborn, you'll be slow in thought, you'll be tedious, those kind of details. Very stone and, you know, and Very, unmovable. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. You, you, got, you, you take on the characteristics of the type of magic that you're wielding the most. Okay. Now, that particular detail is one that comes in very, very handy for my storyline because of the bad characters. Some of the bad characters happen to be in charge of 
the College of Magic, where my character will eventually go to learn magic, and they understand how magic works. They understand that, hey, I can use magic to make in any of these forms. Is that what they teach their students? No. <laughs> Aren't they, they wonderful? <laughs> they don't want their students getting a lot of power. This is not a nice group of people. These are evil people. So basically all, like any college administration. Exactly. All colleges are evil. Just everyone get that out of the way. College <laughs> is evil. So these college administrators, essentially, are evil people who are teaching bad habits to their students. So we have that. They're deliberately setting their students up to have catastrophic emotional meltdowns that could either lead to them disappearing and flying away if they're using air locking themselves in a room and not coming out, potentially if they're stone, or spontaneously combusting and taking a city block with them if they're using fire. Or you can use some other type of magic and you guys can all imagine the horrible consequences therein. My main character, uh, Aiden, will not be learning that style of magic initially, and that's where he gets to come in and be his hero self, because he gets to have all the kinds of fun. The other additional aspect to all this that is point of view of mine that people don't respect the area around them. They don't, you know, there's so much problem. There's so many problems in this city. There's so many problems in developing the area. So the additional aspect of this that I'm adding in is that there's a finite amount of magic in your area. So if you live in a forest area, there's a lot of life. There's a lot of regrowth there. And that is a tie-in to the Gaia deity for giving life to the area and also bringing magic into the area. So part of that you'll see in my story is how my characters interact with the land around them, with the forests, with the mountains, with the cities, and how those things can also interact with the magic as well. There are other complications, but I don't want to spoil everything for everyone. However, I have one word to give everyone, and they, I want my re- listeners to think about what this means for my characters. Demons. I want you to think about demons... Everything I've said, Ooh, and good see word. If you figure out why demons might be a good thing or a bad thing. Because I'm the writer. I already know exactly what the demons do, but you don't. So you guys can figure it out. Okay. <laughs> or you can wait until the book comes out and read, and read the book. That, that's the preferable option, of course. Yeah, I, like, I like that option a lot. <laughs> buy my book. Buy my book. <laughs> Give what? me money, please. Finish your book. Finish your book. Then you can buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> I must finish the book first. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's on you, man. <laughs> working on it. I'm working on it. Just want to thank you to anyone that's a new listener this month uh, or those that are continuing to listen after starting to listen after last month's fantastic episode featuring author Philip J. Sipkov and illustrator Rebecca Head talking about their new book, The Magnus and the Maiden. And it's excellent getting the group together. It's excellent conversation. And it really got a lot of good feedback from listeners. And we got our highest numbers yet for the podcast. So if you're continuing to listen after last month, thank you. Hopefully we continue to keep you entertained and you keep listening. And otherwise, you could go ahead and pick up Magnus and the Maiden is now available for sale. And additionally, not only can you get it for download for nine ninety nine, you can also pick up poster versions of Rebecca's beautiful artwork. The maps of the mysterious island of Ascane and the mainland are available for $4 each from the AS21 market. Market.as21.com. Now they're limited edition. We only have a few in stock. 
so stop on over and check those out. Uh, if you want to find out more about Rebecca and Phil, Rebecca, you can find her artwork at rebeccahead.tumblr.com I realized I forgot to say that last month that that's, that's sort of a disservice to Rebecca that we didn't give a shout out to our site and of course Phil is one of our first creatives at AS21 so you can check him out as21.com slash creatives slash Sipkov S-I-P-K-O-V Last little bit of housekeeping before we get into our conversation about perspective. Last month was an excellent discussion, and when it came time to do editing, unfortunately, we, uh, we tried to keep this podcast to 30 minutes. I had 52 minutes of content after we were done with that discussion. We we just had such a good time talking to each other. So when it came time to cut out, I'm telling people I'm trying to keep it to 30 minutes. I don't want to bore you with our discussions here. What do you do when you have 52 minutes? And I probably, once I cut out, see the long pauses and anything boring I had to say, which is, you know, most of what I say, where I was down to 45 minutes. Then I had to start making some tough calls on trying to cut it. Well, in the podcast, we're going to talk about the plan for future episodes. We're going to have a lot more guests coming up. The simplest thing is to just say, we're going to try for 30 minutes. We're not going to handicap ourselves by making us have to stick to 30 minutes. I don't want to have to cut out good material. I know a couple months back, uh, when I after I finished the editing and posted it, I thought I did a good job of cutting out useless stuff, but there ends up being a couple of disjointed places where like the setup to a conversation got cut out. So it, it just seems like it comes out of nowhere, what we're talking about. So the goal is 30 minutes, but don't be surprised if it's... 39 or 45 even. One thing is I definitely don't want to push towards an hour. There's a lot of podcasts out there that try to stick to an hour. Basically, with once with a guest, we might get to 45 minutes, maybe a little bit more. But otherwise, we're, when it's just me and Paul, we're going to try to keep it close to half an hour. Our comparison podcast, I'm considering us to Stuff You Should Know. And their podcasts range from about 25 to 45 minutes per episode. So pretty much we're going to try to keep within those time constraints. Because really, I know you can only tolerate listening to my voice for so long. And, Fine. <laughs> and you know, some of the subject matter can get rather boring at times. So that's why it'd be good if we try to keep it short. But still be informative. That's the key, is to still be informative. So now we're going to go to a discussion of perspective and narrative voice now just as a quick background there is a narrative point of view which is the perspective through which the story is communicated narrative voice the format through which a story is communicated or the presentation form and narrative time which is the placement of a story's time frame whether it's written in the past tense the present or the future now the narrative point of view is it's primarily first person where the narrator is the main character in the story and you get his or her perspective and usually with that you have other characters or kind of just the main character makes guesses about what the other characters are thinking but you don't really get their input as much so it all depends on how I mean, each one it's up to the individual author or serving the story then you have second person where it's one of the people involved in the story is sort of narrating it as they're taking part but they're not the main character then of course there's third person narration where it's a person possibly outside of a story and refers to everyone as he, she, it, or they, never as I or we or you. Now then there's the other type of perspective which I'm more comfortable with, which is alternating person. In both of my fiction books, Polk's Soliloquy and Life's Penance, I wrote alternating person where at times I would flip 
the perspective where I'm either my main character, you'd be hearing my main character, but I, it would always be someone talking, but also be able to read my main character's mind. And then I would switch to the perspective of someone else, like one of the friends or even someone on the phone with him. Of course, with uh, voices, then you're talking objective versus subjective and omniscient versus limited omniscient. Omniscient, of course, meaning they are knowledgeable of everything that's going on. The narrative voice, those typically work best with a third person point of view. And then, let's see, that's subjective. That's when the narrator conveys the thoughts, feelings, opinions of one or more characters. And if it's only one character, it's third, called third person limited, but... That's hard to do when there's multiple characters. Then third-person objective tells the story without describing the character's thoughts, opinions, or feelings, but tries to give a more unbiased view of the storyline. So now that I've explained point of view, narrative voice, and everything to death... (laughs) (laughs) No. No? No. You could go on a lot longer if you wanted to, to talk it to Deb. You explained it quite neatly and nicely for our poor, poor listeners. Our poor, poor listeners. Uh, <laughs> so, Paul, mm. now you've written, in high school you wrote poetry and short fiction, or... In high school and now, I write a lot of different stuff. I still write in the occasional piece of poetry... Mm-hmm. Some short fiction. Occasionally, I'll write a piece of nonfiction. Okay. Yeah. Now, do you like to keep to one style, or do you prefer to change it up depending on the story? It very much does depend on the story that I'm writing. The Will of the Magi is from the third-person omniscient point of view, Okay. Um, where you're going to be typically, you will be, the reader is basically like God, looking down upon the world. So they are, from the way I write, you are more limited to being God, following one specific character, and knowing that one specific character's thoughts. Third Person Omniscient seems to work very well with the fantasy genre. Of course, that Lord of the Rings yeah. used Third Person Omniscient. Right. Jane Austen uses Third Person Omniscient. It's all, it is the most common, yes. actually, of fiction work. So. Yep. In my opinion, it's one of the easiest ones to write, and, you know, it's... It's how I view my stories once they've once I add some flesh to them. I tend to live my stories out in my head. I think a lot of writers do that. So when I first see the story and experience it, it's from a very first person, my first person perspective. But I can't write that because I get arrogant if I'm doing that. So I jump back into a third person when I'm actually writing it out. Now, I've seen some books where they've actually changed perspective, where like the forward and the afterward are first person. and then, But the actual book is third person omniscient or, or subjective. Yep. So, uh, it could be, I mean, that's interesting sometimes. It can give you a little bit more insight, like brings you into the, in, the actual main character and then takes you out. So you kind of get, get a first taste of being in the character's head and then get kicked out again. Yeah, it's, I like stories that give you that. I can't remember a couple of them off the top of my head, but I do know I've read some where you'll get that prologue where you're inside the character's head and you are that character. And then you go with the rest of the story and then you are the third person perspective. So I do appreciate those because it allows, allows a deeper connection, I feel, to the characters. 
Yeah. No, I've written well. I've written and published one thing that's first person, and that was a short story I wrote that will be published in last year's AS21 annual, which is now accepting submissions, by the way, for this year's edition. <laughs> I wrote a short a story called Rough Ridden, and it was based on the Rough Riders during the Spanish American War, but told from the perspective of one of the horses. <laughs> I thought it was an interesting point of view. I like that. Well, considering it was a cavalry unit, but if you actually see any of the... I mean, there is a famous carving of them charging up San Juan Hill, which has got many problems. One, it has them on the horses, and the horses didn't actually make it to Cuba. And two, it has them going up San Juan Hill when they actually charged Kettle Hill. Right. <laughs> and it has Theodore Roosevelt in the lead when he was actually the second in command, but... Right. Yeah. Just minor details there. Minor. Yeah, minor. Yeah. So, but I, I decided they did train with horses and everything, and there, there is an unfortunate circumstance with what happened to the horses, knowing what I knew of the history, and going back and doing a bit more research, and wrote it first person from the horse's perspective, and it follows that setup, where it's present day, the horse is in a situation, and thinks back, okay... How did I get here? And then just tells a whole story from when it was first captured right up to the current state of play. I like that. Yeah. Of course, if you'd like to read that and other short stories, <laughs> pick up the 2014 edition of the AS21 Annual, now available in print and e-journal online. And then, of course, you could submit poetry, short stories, excerpts, essays, photography, and art to this year's annual as of Saturday, August 1st, until the end of the month. <laughs> and by the way, I had brought up the Kickstarter in past months. The Kickstarter was we fully funded, completely successful. Thank you to everyone who <laughs> donated. So back to our conversation on perspective. Uh, some of the short stories that you've written in the past, what kind of perspective have you dealt with there? The vast majority of them are, I write third-person perspective, third-person omniscient perspective for the vast majority. One piece I wrote in my senior year of high school was from the first-person perspective. I wrote it as a joke, but because of the reaction it continuously gets, it's actually one of my favorite pieces. It reads like a piece of erotic literature. <laughs> high school, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was a very bad person in high school. I actually got sent to the assistant principal's office because of a story I wrote <laughs> my freshman year because... It was getting compared to Stephen King. Oh. It was that disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, erotic fiction compared to Stephen King? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. This is two separate stories. Oh, okay. I'm Although sorry. I should, I'm going to write that now. <laughs> I'm going to write some erotic fiction that's com- that can be compared to Stephen King's work. I will work on this now. Okay. Okay, because, you know, I've read some Stephen King and, yeah. <laughs> that thing if is, if I he wrote I any erotic fiction, it would be pretty disturbing. <laughs> I, I know how to pull this off, too. That's the sad thing. Oh, no. Oh. The scary piece of fiction I wrote, I wrote my freshman year, and it was a Halloween story, and it was so disturbing that they worried for the safety of the school because of the wonderful zero-tolerance policies. I was sent to the, the assistant principal's office, and she and I just chatted for about 15 minutes, and she said, get out. You're just a really good writer. You're not a threat to this school, and that was the end of it. So that was that one. But the erotic piece that was that I wrote from the first person perspective, it reads again like erotic literature until you get about halfway down because most of it is describing a woman's lips, this and that. 
And then I wrap it up, and the entire piece is a woman eating a piece of chocolate cake. Oh, that could be pretty erotic, though. Exactly! (laughs) But the idea itself, a woman eating cake, is... The basic idea is not erotic. But if you expand upon it, like I did, I made people blush. (laughs) I made people get creeped out, because they like cake. (laughs) Maybe they're questioning how much they like cake. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole new area of sexuality to be explored. How much do I love cake? Yeah. We're going to have people marrying cake from now on. It's going to be fantastic. Well, man. See, there's the next uh, front in uh, equal rights. (laughs) Excellent. I've broken the barrier. Do you, Paul, take this chocolate cake? (laughs) The problem is those marriages, they never last. (laughs) No, they don't. First, they make you sick, and then they get... Stale. Uh. Yeah. Anyway, and, and and you can have too much cake, but you no. can also have your cake and eat it too. This is true. Yeah. This is true. See, when I think of like disturbing stories, in sixth grade we had to write a fairy tale, and the idea was that it would be a sequel to a common fairy tale. Mm. I wrote a sequel to One Hundred and One Dalmatians, in which I killed off all of the, all of the dogs. And seriously, I was not disturbed as a child. Like it, it just that was that seemed like the logical <laughs> next step. What you're not going to have two hundred and two Dalmatians. You know, that's <laughs> just that's simply unfeasible. Yeah, so, the next step is Cruella actually gets her coat. <laughs> no, actually, Cruella wasn't it. It was just like they went on a safari and were attacked by a leopard, and one <laughs> starved to death. The the mother dog jumped in front of a garbage truck. <laughs> oh. yeah, it was really. Hindsight, thinking about that, I was like, "How did my parents not get a call about that?" I mean, if I would have written, if I was a kid today and I wrote that, I'd be so, you know, you'd be locked in a mental institution and drugged. Yeah, and of course, at that time, my favorite poet was Edgar Allan Poe. There you so, go. So, I mean, you could read so much into that, but. My teacher, knowing that I was just a cheerful kid, and the one note that was on my story was, you certainly thought up a lot of different ways to die. Yeah. I'll give you a little bit more. That disturbing story that I wrote, it was a Halloween piece. So we had to write a story from English class about concerning Halloween. The theme was Halloween. That was it. Now, the most of the other students in the class don't like, didn't like to write. So we got one page, maybe one and a half pages. Right. Mine was about ten. <laughs> so the spirit was in you. <laughs> yes. It was a it was a ritualistic murder that a young boy discovered on his front yard that was summoning the third horseman of the apocalypse. Just the third. <laughs> just the third. Just okay. pestilence. They, okay, they were They didn't misdial. They wanted the second, but they got the third. <laughs> uh, they just want the third one. You know. Okay. It was that specific of a thing, and so it's two pages, three pages of right, me describing lawn. the murder scene. Okay, front lawn. I'm guessing was this like a suburb? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, okay. Think white middle class suburb area. Ritual murder in the front yard. And then the rest of the scene is my child main character witnessing what happens to his family and the rest of the world when the horseman shows up. Wow. Everybody dies. Yeah. 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 I actually think part of that was written in the first person, 
Uh, I'll have to find the copy of that story somewhere. Um, I think I may have switched that one around a little bit. I don't remember exactly. It's been a few years. No, with the poetry you wrote, did you ever was any of that first person or was that all? More first uh, poetry jumped around for me. I wrote a lot of first person poetry. I wrote a lot of second person poetry. A lot of use. I wrote every single form of third person poetry you could imagine. Okay. There, there was a point in my life where everything was poetry. The high school in love phase and then the heartbreak phase and all those kind of wonderful things. Yeah. There was also a small point in my life when I was selling poetry. Since most middle school age boys don't have a poetic bone in their body. And those of us who do know how to woo the women. Because mm-hmm. girls love the muscles, they love the jocks, but sometimes they want words and they want feelings. Yeah. And those of us who know about words and feelings can make a very pretty dollar bribing them. Except (laughs) you have to make sure each poem is only sold once. Yes. If you sell the same poem to multiple people, girls compare notes. Yeah. And they compare poetry. (laughs) Yeah. I learned that lesson the hard way. Oh, man. That was a very wealthy poem. (laughs) Trying to think. I think most of my poetry I wrote when I was experimented was either first or second person. I remember writing a poem that got published in, when I was at Penn State, it got published in the Penn State Literary Magazine. First person, but it was a person recounting their life story. And essentially, I wrote the American history as America being a person, describing the Civil War as puberty and (laughs) things like that. Oh, that's just cool. I like that. Yeah. And what's, Revolutionary what's, War is birth pains? I talked about how like my parents fell out of love with each other after I was born, and so I would live with my father and his three friends, so my four fathers. <laughs> <laughs> and like- that there was a custody hearing with the mother. You know, that's War of 1812. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I like that. Yeah, and uh, then, then of course, I made it like there was a neighborhood fight, and I had to organize the part of a neighbor, so that's a World Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, I mean, if, you, if you write it from, as I'm thinking through this, I'm thinking, if mom, if England is mom, yes, I would view it as mom getting into a fight with an abusive boyfriend. Okay. That's how I would view the relationship with Germany, because they're both Aryans. True. So, I don't know. That's just me, but hey, yeah. Yeah. I, don't know, I, I tend to overthink things. You know, I probably, I, I'm trying to remember it, I don't think I, I, I probably should have thought that out a little bit more. I think I was so just enamored with myself for even writing it with this interesting <laughs> well, idea. Well, that's the problem with all of us. All yes. of us. We get very enamored with our own ideas. This is the most brilliant thing ever written! I just remember when the head of a literary magazine stopped by my office, because I, I was the editor-in-chief of the newspaper, so I had an office, and she said, that was a good poem. And I, uh, do you, Did you guess what it was about? She goes, I had an idea. Is it American history? I said, yeah. And, and I'm like, pretty deep, right? She's like, yeah. I go, <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, oh, not that deep. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> not uh, that deep. That's always harsh. Yeah, and then we had a recital. So I got up and read that poem. I read a poem that I published in my high school literary magazine about being shy. 
and then I ended it by singing. <laughs> so it was nice because there were, there were some female members of the audience that came up to talk about how uh, it was the juxtaposition of um, American history, but also describing how much I disliked being shy. And then I sang in front of a group of 30-odd students, uh, you yeah, my peers. There you go. Unfortunately, I didn't take advantage. I didn't get any phone numbers or anything out of that. Oh, come on. You got yeah. phone numbers. I was stupid. <laughs> That's why we have business cards now. Yes. Please, I don't need your number. Here's mine. Yeah. Well, now I'm happily married with kids, so I obviously solved that situation at some point. Hey. Hey, there you go. Yeah. You got your wife and kids. I got girlfriends. So it works out for all of us eventually. Yep. Yep. So, all right, time to wrap up this month's uh, edition of the Publish Me podcast. This is in uh, Chapter 5, Perspective. Next month, we're going to have another guest. We'll guest joining us will be novelist Ian Roberts, author of the political thriller Nos Populus. He will be joining us as we'll be talking about story management. Ian's book is, I believe, 358 pages long. I'm not sure the exact word count. I don't have that in front of me, but it was a labor of love with him. It's split in two parts, written over a course of a couple years. So we'll be talking about how we organize the outline of a story and building it over time and trying to keep everything focused because a story could very easily get away from you and also very easily come up short. I know there's a whole chapter of Polk Soliloquy that I didn't write because I was like, you know what, I don't care to write that <laughs> chapter. <laughs> Instead, I wrote just a quick summation of what should have been that chapter in the in the next There you go. But then, of course, I don't know if you've seen the uh, Michael Douglas film uh, Wonder Boys. Mm. Wonder Boys. I shouldn't forget that. It was filmed partially in my hometown, in which he's a professor at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, and but he, he's kind of coasting off of the great American novel that he wrote. Mm. And it's been 30 years, and he's been writing the whole time his next book, and it's now several thousand pages and <laughs> yeah he just keeps writing he can't he just keeps writing because he can't find the ending oh, so I... something to think about when we come back for the september 2015 edition of the podcast chapter six story management Remember to check us out, media.as21.com, on Facebook, facebook.com slash publishpodcast, and on Twitter, at publishpodcast. For the Publish Me Podcast, I am Keith F. Shovlin, publisher and chief creative of AS21 Publishing. And always, I am Paul Russell, author of The Will of the Magi. Everyone, please remember, where there are thoughts and ideas, there are stories. Copyright 2015. AS21 Publishing, LLC. All rights reserved. AS21 Publishing. What do you want your book to be?